hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 61, Showa Ascendance. Today we're closing out our intro coverage of Japan and introducing a literal new era for the country. The back half of the 1920s saw Japan enter its most democratic phase of its politics during our time period. However, the height of the Taisho democracy was sadly an uneven one. A big moment I'll be covering shortly is the expansion of universal male suffrage in 1905, which was a long-sought reform for much of the country. Its passage, though, also brought with it new restrictions in public behavior, specifically in how people were expected to cooperate with the state. And that was just the beginning of those types of laws. Whereas in the first half of the 20s, the state tolerated public agitation, labor movements, and kind of sort of leftists for a little bit there, by the second part of the decade, that patience had evaporated. The swing of power to the House of Representatives and universal suffrage should have meant a more representative Japan. But a rash of laws and police crackdowns meant that non-conservative political parties could never truly get off the ground. This was in addition to all that political disillusionment I've gone on about regarding many Japanese, which disengaged many from taking greater advantage of their new rights, thinking the game was already rigged against them. Which wasn't entirely wrong as the parties in the House of Representatives used their new power to secure their own positions in that body. And since there were fewer power struggles among factions and houses of government diverting energy and political capital, those parties could focus on enforcing a more conservative vision of the nation. I'm repeating myself from previous episodes, I know, but the established political parties of Japan, even the ones considered liberal, were broadly speaking pro-military, pro-business, and nationalistic. The squabbles of, say, Hara versus the military during the Siberian expedition, or the debate over whether to cooperate with the West or go it alone, were disagreements over tactics, not end goals. Japan was a state ruled by a divine emperor who held ultimate authority. Its overseas empire was regarded as a defense bulwark and a land of opportunity. The source of its wealth was an industrial base operated in trust by a business class close to the government, and the military was the key to protecting all of those things. That was the conventional wisdom from on high, and many officials wanted to reassert that. By mid-1924, the House of Representatives were dominated by three parties, the Sayukai, the Sayuhanto, the Kensikai. I haven't mentioned the latter two yet, as the Sayuhanto was a breakaway faction from the Sayukai, which was still divided over Takahashi's leadership. The Kensikai, was a descendant of the opposition groups organized by Yamagata in the lower house who resist the Sayukai. By this point, though, electoral politics were in the ascendancy, and the party had evolved from a tool of obstruction into a player in its own right. All these groups were conservative in outlook, though the non-breakaway part of the Sayukai and the Kensakai both wanted to hurry up and do away with Kiora Kego's appointed government and install themselves into power. Their obstructive tactics in the legislature finally caused Kiora to resign in June 1924 in favor of another responsible government, and an election was held to decide the lower house's composition. The Sayukai split really screwed them, as the main party got 103 seats and the Sayuhanto got 111. The Kensikai came out the big winner, though, getting 151. This victory led to Keito Takaki of the Kensikai becoming prime minister in June 1924. And from the start, he had a big piece of legislation that he had to deliver on. Remember that the Kensakai had functioned as an opposition party to the Sayukai for most of its existence, and one piece of legislation the Sayukai always resisted was universal suffrage. 
For years now, the Kensakai had been pushing for it to score political points, but now they were actually in the driver's seat. Well, they were the biggest party. To get a majority big enough, they had to form a coalition with the rump of the Sayukai, who now, as a condition of being junior partners, had to turn around and support the legislation, which they had opposed for years now. A little awkward, but that's politics. The forcible turnaround was made easier on the Sayukai because, as I mentioned, universal suffrage wasn't the only law that was going to be passed simultaneously. The suffrage law was presented virtually hand-in-hand with the Public Peace Maintenance Law. This doozy was a law that forbid being part of any organization that might seek to alter the existing state and economic system under threat of imprisonment. It basically banned socialist and communist groups from trying to, you know, overthrow capitalism. It was even more important, though, because while the Marxists were the prime targets, the law didn't specify them by name, instead allowing for anyone who might upset the status quo. And it would ultimately be the state that decided what constituted upsetting that status quo. So, just as people were being franchised, their ability to choose whom to support politically at the ballot box was being restricted. And you could also trace a line on the road to authoritarian Japan, really starting here. So, on May 7, 1925, the suffrage law was passed, enabling all men 25 and up the right to vote. And then just five days later on the 12th, the public peace maintenance law was passed as well. With it, the tide started to turn back towards conservatism in society. But it didn't happen all at once. And let's take a look at how the populist movements were gradually broken down into compliance. The most obvious target was the far left. In the years leading up to 1925, there had been a buildup in the capabilities of the Special Higher Police, a group focused on monitoring and cracking down on political groups, including ones with clandestine elements like communists. Their activities earned them the moniker Thought Police, as they were the culmination of the establishment's fear of dangerous thoughts that I've mentioned in the past. And now they got the green light and went into full-gear oppression, driving the communists underground. And while the cachet of Marxism would continue to inspire some within the universities going into the 30s, uh, that might be more indicative of the tolerance the authorities had towards the well-to-do rather than actual effective resistance from, the, from those quarters. The far left had unfortunately done in Japan more or less what it had done all over Europe up to this point, which was make enough noise that the establishment got spooked and dropped the hammer. Then there was the case of the Japanese labor movement in general. There had been a lot of success leading into the second half of the decade on part of the union movements, but that was about to fall by the wayside. The new law put potential strikers firmly in the crosshairs of the police, and management was not slow to press for confrontations. One of the most notable examples was the notice strike in 1927-28. The workers at the Notice Soy Sauce Company had, back in December 1921, gone on strike and won concessions on work hours and assistance with housing. In September 1927, they went on strike again to demand recognition of their union and more pay. Management decided to go to war this time. They fired all the strikers and tried to bring in scabs. The picketers didn't like that and set themselves upon the scabs, and there was even an incident of throwing acid in a scab's face. The managers had to barricade their homes and send away their families as the picketers were out for blood, specifically their blood. The strike dragged out, though, and the workers' resources started to falter and police pressure mounted against them. Finally, in April 1928, they agreed to mediation. The result was not great for the strikers. 
one-third were hired back on, the rest got a severance package. The union was not just unrecognized, but had to disband. This was an extreme case, as in many situations both strikers and management lacked the resources in sketchy economic times to go months with no activity, and ergo came to the table a little more readily. But a continued problem was lack of legislation recognizing the workers' unions. The Kensakai had also pushed for that during their time in the opposition, and did bring it up in 1905, but it was stonewalled by the Japan Industrial Club, uh, that group of large firms that very much did not want organized labor, and were prepared to shell out a lot of money to make sure it didn't happen. Eventually, legislation did reach the House of Representatives, but it was dropped when the session it was presented in ran out of time before it could be voted on. Yes, the bill died to a technicality of procedure that could have been easily avoided, but having it go away without an embarrassing vote on it was the entire point. For the larger companies and the truly gargantuan Zaibatsu, they started turning to friendlier tactics in order to break down the labor movement on their end. Uh, remember that the oldest tactic in the Japanese workers' playbook was simply to quit and take his skills someplace else, which was a constant threat for the bosses and didn't require a union to do. As I've discussed in episodes past, to curtail this, the firms with resources at their disposal started becoming paternalistic. While I don't mean that quite literally, many egotistical owners certainly saw themselves at the head of every household on their floors, uh, and but what I'm saying is that they started taking care of their workers to an extent. And yeah, that sounds like a no-brainer. Uh, if the employees are quitting and going elsewhere, just pay them more and offer them benefits. Two things on that. One, making meaningful efforts to retain employees rather than just dip into the ever-bigger labor pool was still a developing concept in 1920s Japan, as it did require a certain level of management experience and also farsightedness that not every firm could afford, and two, these arrangements were made on the basis of worker-employer relationship. There was no representation for the worker. The benefits were presented solely at the discretion and benevolence of the employer. This benevolence was not a subtle one either, as the bosses worked to project an image that they were the providers of good fortune. The benefits would usually take the form of pay, hours, housing assistance, better access to services, time off, that sort of thing which also meant that the larger firms became more enticing as well, since it was the big operations that had the money to throw around to sustain these bonuses. Those firms with smaller margins, well, they just had to keep working through the churn. And the results show, as, for example, by the end of the decade, heavy industries saw turnover drops in the 15-20% to 20 range year over year. This also meant less money was spent on recruitment and training. And then there were unspoken benefits to the paternalistic approach. Since it was on a worker-by-worker -worker basis, companies would typically apply the full package of attractive benefits to a reliable core of workers. There would still be a segment of workers who earned far less for their labor and were not trained up to the level of their more permanent fellows. They were thus considered expendable. They would be hired on in good times to work, and when business slowed down, were easily cast aside to shrink payroll, while the most productive core was retained. With much of the skilled labor enticed by their new benefits, union membership stagnated and began to decline. Another development for Japanese labor was the passage of the Labor Dispute Conciliation Law of 1926. This one didn't overtly favor the owners, but it does have some long-term ramifications for Japanese industry. The law, in a nutshell, establishes an optional method of conciliation between workers and employers where a three-member council is set up. One member represents workers, 
one the employers, and a third would be a neutral government employee. Don't laugh. I know. I know. Yeah, neutral government employee. How neutral can they actually be? Well, it depends. And the way the law actually played out was probably not quite what the government expected. First of all, there was a ministry established to handle managing local mediators who would probably be someone from the area. So the mediators probably weren't part of some anti-labor cabal, although it was a case-by-case thing. That being said, the idea of a mediator was not new in Japanese disputes. Basically, from word go in Japanese industry, whenever there was a dispute, a mediator was usually brought in to help resolve the situation. The role was taken seriously by both sides, and it was important for the appearance of impartiality to be maintained as each side was expected to make some concessions, and the mediator would help both save face once the final agreement was made. Let's say the employer had to raise wages. They didn't cave to the workers. He was convinced by the mediator that it was a prudent course of action that would bring benefits to him later. And that's the role the government officials that popped up after this law was enacted were expected to do. Except a funny thing happened. Not that many people called them up. In fact, the formal three-person council was only used six times. It was an optional service, after all, but one already handled by independent mediators. But the enterprising bureaucrats on the ground were not dismayed by the lack of participation, and they started to unofficially offer their services. This benefited everybody as a government official had substantially more cachet with both workers and management than a private operator. While the percentage of disputes handled by the government officials unofficially would only reach barely 50 by the end of the 30s, this change was important because the state was able to start influencing those disputes. In the late 20s, this fact was mostly academic, but it became more important as society became increasingly mobilized for the purposes of war. And it's been a solid month since I mentioned them, but you might remember that farmers were also organizing during this period as well. In fact, by 1923, some were even advocating the establishment of organizational ties with their urban counterparts. Unfortunately, those efforts did not materialize before they too were affected by the laws restricting activity deemed to be a disturbance. Although this was mostly confined to the open leftists operating in the countryside, who also just so happened to be the most likely to create such alliance with the urban proletariat. Three large police sweeps between 1928 and 1931 removed them as a factor in rural Japan. Another problem facing organized labor in the countryside was a general slowdown in participation by the mid-20s. The main reason for this was because the various farmers' unions were local in character and had only recently been created to deal with the economic crunch felt during World War I and the years beyond. Once those conditions started to improve, the unions struggled to articulate an ongoing mission statement, as they had been formed to address the crisis at hand and not future ones. There was little in the way of ideology for the farmers to organize in the long term, and the Marxists that might have offered that ideology were just coming under siege. Although it probably didn't matter in any case, there were some attempts in the early 20s to spread ideas of class struggle, but many farmers were intimidated at the prospect of such drastic change to their lives. Most just wanted to secure a patch of land that produced crops they could sell for a living, and not much else. Plus, the state, meaning the police, didn't crack down on the farmer groups the way they did the urban unions. An important item to remember is that a sizable number of the organized farmers were those with a moderate amount of land, and either had just enough to get by, or at least had some holdings and rented an additional amount to get by. 
which meant that these were people with a much greater stake in society than, say, urban workers who rented a shanty and drifted from job to job. Even among the purely tenant farmers, different rules applied in how they were treated. And Japanese voting requirements up to 1925 included provisions for landholders as well, and the political parties weren't keen on oppressing their own voters. For instance, the Sayukai's original base of support was among well-to-do or aspiring well-to-do farmers, and their interests were at least listened to, if not totally fulfilled. In 1924, for instance, a conciliation law was passed that, like its later urban counterpart law, also allowed for government officials to adjudicate disputes between tenants and landlords, and legislation was passed in 1926 to create a program for low-interest loans for some tenants to buy land of their own. And behind the scenes, the government would also approach landlords directly about cutting their tenants some slack and just promotes social harmony. In this manner, the crisis of the countryside was contained and gradually de-escalated. Important to note that the cities had no such luck, but a conservative government will always consider the rural more in favor of rights and privileges than the urban. And while conditions improved for the farmers enough that the impetuous to organize started to wane, the experience of the past decade plus had left a mark. Life in the countryside had not gone through any revolution, but they had suffered just to remain somewhat in place. In the meanwhile, the cities continued to develop, even in the midst of economic depression, with patterns of consumption continuing to evolve closer to that of the West. On one hand, the rural inhabitants were envious of the better access to nice consumer goods, but they were apprehensive about the change in lifestyle that went hand-in-hand hand with them. A result of this cultural unease was the idea to create a distinctly rural identity, focused on the local village and communal in character, free of capitalistic drives to constantly boost output and profits. This new school of thought would drive a new era of farmer organization, but not towards the previous tenant-landlord conflict, but rather towards community-driven organization that would see to it that everybody was employed and taken care of. Not equally, mind you, but enough that the lowest tenants weren't starving. We'll pick this idea back up in more detail when we return to Japan next season, but a little spoiler to where it's going, the government is going to find apolitical, conflict-averse communal organizations very useful tools to co-opt for control over the countryside. And while all this reaction was going on, there was one more major event that was going to change the way Japan was governed. There was going to be a new emperor. The crown prince Hirohito had already been regent since 1921, but was still growing past his sheltered existence and into an active ruler. On December 25th, 1926, though, his father died, and he was immediately crowned a sovereign of the Japanese Empire. His imperial name was determined to be Showa, or Illustrious Peace, which, yes, is deeply ironic given where all this is going. I know I mentioned it in an earlier episode, but just to refresh, he would be referred to as the Showa Emperor in Japan after his death, just like his uh, predecessors in their era days which means it would be appropriate for myself to address him as such here, but overwhelming sources in the history books refer to him only as Hirohito. So, just to avoid confusion, I'm going to keep calling that. No longer would the emperor be an invalid, and as the new monarch grew in confidence, he began to take a more active hand in the nation's governance. And by the time Hirohito formally took the throne, there was really only one figure left with cloud enough to give him pause, and that was Sionji. The last of the Genro had held great influence since the death of Yamagata, and he had acquired the right to confirm governments, even among the elected House representatives. Remember, while he had defanged the Privy Council and deliberately kept the House of Peers divided, 
he considered the House of Representatives a fundamentally conservative body, a protector of the status quo of imperial power and capitalistic interests. Its representative nature was a smokescreen to legitimize its decisions, and the domestic laws passed after 1925 were designed to keep that body as conservative as possible. And this meant that while he arranged the body's government just so, he never once made any move to curb the emperor's status in society as the ultimate font of all political power, even in the most absent days of the Taisho Emperor. This kind of came back to bite him as Hirohito, with the guidance of the nobles around him, began to press his right to confirm government selections starting in 1927, which had previously been in the hands of Sionji. This came as something of a surprise for the old general, as he had always advised Hirohito to remain aloof in politics. After all, the division of power in Japan had been created so that the emperor would not have to dirty his hands with such matters. But Hirohito wanted to get his hands dirty, and his chief advisor, Makino Nabuaki, pressed the young emperor that the challenges facing society could only be solved with the unquestioned authority of an emperor. The circumstances of this first, but by no means last, intervention in government affairs was the collapse of the Kensakai government. Originally led by Kato Takaki, the prime minister had died in office in early 1926, being replaced by Wakatsuki Rijiro. He doesn't matter too much and was undone in April 1927 during a financial crisis I'll get to in a bit. April 1927 was just three months into the Showa era, and both the palace and the diet wished to avoid having a government collapse so early. So, Wakatsuki approached the Sayukai and Sayuhanto about just shuffling the deck chairs around, an arrangement which they agreed to, which put Tanaka Gichi in charge of the government. Remember that he was the army man who had been a convert to party politics when he worked with Hara back at the turn of the decade. Tanaka set about organizing the government and put an emphasis on selecting members of the Sayukai, which was in keeping with common practice of rewarding your political allies. Too bad for him, there was a new emperor in town, one that strongly preferred that he make appointments apolitical and based solely on merit. Tanaka, who had spent the bulk of his time in high politics under the Taisho Emperor, didn't really know what to do with Hirohito hovering over his shoulder, and his two years in office would be spent on the defense as Hirohito increasingly became publicly frustrated with him. And public criticism from the imperial palace naturally turbocharged attacks from within the diet well, since they were acting on the wisdom of their divine ruler. Not due to any electoral defeat, but simply the increasing hostility of the throne, Tanaka would resign in July 1929. Not that his years in office were unremarkable for Japan. I talked last episode how the devastation of a depression and the Kanto earthquake led to aggressive lending to kickstart recovery efforts. Well, those efforts had certainly pumped a lot of money into the system, but the capability to pay back the loans hadn't really materialized yet. A trading company that had survived the 1920 crash by taking out huge loans from the Bank of Taiwan, an institution set up in that colony by Japan, uh, well, they couldn't pay their debts back and unraveled in April 1927 without assets to compensate the bank, which caused a panic to set in as people assumed that the whole financial system was going to fall apart. People started withdrawing their money from banks all over Japan, threatening many as they didn't have the cash on hand to meet these requests, which, yes, was not a very big vote of confidence on the economy's stability. 11% of all deposits in Japan were withdrawn. The government had to announce a 20-day suspension of all loan payments and a two-day bank closure to let the panic subside. While there continued to be problems as many firms were unable to pay off their loans went bankrupt, there was increased regulation after 1927 that forced banks to keep minimum amounts of cash on hand at 
all times to meet future panics, which helpfully did actually stabilize the banking sector before the Great Depression, which itself was obviously going to be a huge issue and a capstone to the economic chaos Japan suffered all through the 20s. Switching gears to foreign policy, during the Tanaki years, the China question also came sharply into focus. For most of the 20s before 1927, the policy of Japan towards China was one of economic penetration, not territorial expansion. The increasingly anti-Japanese sentiment among the Chinese people, though, led to a boycott of Japanese goods, which, during an economic slump, meant it could not have come at a worse time. Additionally, there was the matter of the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek. I'm going to talk all about them in the coming Chinese episode, but long story short, they were a political and military faction in a very divided China that was angling for control during a decade of civil war. Chiang had launched a huge offensive starting in China's far south, marching northwards province by province, knocking out every rival along the way. During 1927, there was alarm as it was feared that the nationalists would dismantle Japanese interests in China, and Tanaka reversed the policy of non-interference there and began deploying troops to protect those interests. By 1928, Chiang's army was in North China and clashed with a Japanese detachment in the Shandong province. While the Japanese easily got the better of it, and Chiang elected to simply leave them to be on his way to uh, Beijing, the Japanese realized they were facing a potentially fully united China, one resistant to foreign influence. The situation was more complicated when Chiang's advance brought him in conflict with Zhang Zhulin, the Manchurian warlord and the main Japanese client in China. The Japanese didn't want Zhang to fight the nationalists and lose, so they advised him to withdraw back to Manchuria from the provinces he had won farther to the south. Zhang ignored this advice and tried to fight the Kuomintang, but by June 1928 had to evacuate Beijing. That's where the Kwantung Army entered the picture. The Kwantung Army was the Japanese army of occupation on the Liaodong Peninsula, south of Manchuria. Some of the local officers had felt Zhang had got too big for his britches and was no longer compliant enough, and figured the moment of his defeat was a good one to knock him off. On their own initiative, they bombed a railroad bridge that Zhang's train was passing over as he was returning to Manchuria. This bold move had no authorization, and the officers had hoped it would force Tanaka's hand and lead him to order a full invasion of Manchuria to secure Jap Japanese interests. This didn't happen, and there was both massive outcry in Japan against the move, and also Zhang's army was just taken over by his son, who, correctly suspecting Japan being behind his father's death, moved to reconcile with Chang and the nationalists. It was, all in all, a political disaster, and Tanaka promised Hirohito that he would punish those involved. Unfortunately, despite being a military man, Tanaka was just as alienated from the army as any civilian might have been, and only slaps on the wrist were doled out. This is what ultimately ended Tanaka's government, as Hirohito lost patience with his ineffectualness, and Tanaka resigned under heavy public attack. And that's really where Japan's flirtation with democracy is really going to run into trouble in the early 30s. Domestically, the population might be reined in, but the military never was, and to use a cliché, the tail would increasingly wag the dog as the years went by. Not to get too far in the future, but the civilian government's issues handling both the Great Depression and what to do about China distracted it from a resurgent military that was confident again in taking advantage of militaristic sentiment among the House of Representatives and start interfering in government affairs again. And then there was Hirohito, increasingly asserting himself on policy decisions without any regard to public opinion. It was a dangerous recipe, and Japan's stunted government proved unable to resist. 
its fragmented center's power had been consolidated into a diet that didn't entirely disagree in outlook with groups looking now to bring it to heat. Japan's democratic institutions, which had evolved under the pressures of those rooting for it to fail, it never became representative enough of the actual Japanese people to prevent the days of authoritarianism that were coming. But those days of unbridled militarism will have to wait for next season. As now, I will turn to an oddly overlooked power in world affairs during this time, China. These years were a period of revolution and civil war, and its issues would not even be resolved by 1945. It's going to be big, it's going to be messy, and if you thought Japanese politics were convoluted, you haven't seen anything yet. Join me then, because I'm really looking forward to this one, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.